reality in this picture. It is realized in part in time and progressively so. But the fullness of it will come with a new creation and eternity. This is the goal of history. God's perfect order. A new creation. God's perfect community. A new Jerusalem. Man always seeks everywhere and in every culture a perfect order. Man seeks justice. Man craves a perfect order, an order with true righteousness. And every system the world over dreams of it. And apart from biblical faith, this dream manifests itself in the modern world in the form of utopianism. Dreams of an ideal social order, a perfect world, a world in which all problems are solved. We do not have to look far nowadays to find utopianism all around us. But apart from a Christian hope, this dream of a perfect world, a perfect order, Triumph of justice. Of two very serious effects. First, apart from physical faith, man is a sinner, an unregenerate sinner, and man the sinner wants a just world and perfect righteousness without the necessity of repentance and regeneration. He wants everything in the world perfect except himself. Every man wants a perfect wife. But not every man is ready to be a perfect husband, godly and faithful, and in all things all that God requires him to be. Similarly, similarly, women dream of the perfect husband. They are not ready to be perfect wives. The attitude of man the sinner is, let the world be perfect, make it easier for me in my sin. Let there be no consequence for my sin, but perfection all around to nullify anything that I may do. And so, as man the sinner dreams of a perfect world, of justice realized, he wants it everywhere except in his own heart. Since all men are sinners, it means that all men want everything else to be in conformity to perfect justice. And they are Second characteristic of this dream and hope for justice. 
in its perfection and its total realization, either in time or in eternity. You can say, I believe that there will be perfect justice in time. Or you can say that perfect justice can only come in eternity. And when John gives us this picture of the New Jerusalem, and when Paul tells us that we are citizens of it and are come into it, he nevertheless makes it clear that the fullness of it is only in eternity. And so this must characterize the Christian. He cannot expect perfect justice in this world. In fact, the most we can hope for is partial justice, a measure of justice. Because the locale of heaven is not in this world. Fulfillment of justice means heaven and hell. Because heaven indeed is the accomplishing of God's justice for those who are his saints, for those who accept God's justice in Jesus Christ against himself, and by faith repent and are regenerated in Jesus Christ. And hell is God's justice manifested against sinners. And heaven and hell belong to the world to come. But apart from visible faith, almost every system, and indeed we can't say all systems, in some degree expect perfect justice in time. This means that the source of justice, instead of being God in eternity, becomes something in time. And the inevitable implication of this, of every expectation that justice is to be realized, perfect justice in this world, is the state. The scientific socialist state is precisely that answer of humanistic man to John's vision of the new Jerusalem. Perfect order realized in time by the scientific socialist state. Now perfect justice is going to be realized in time. It means you have taken heaven and hell out of eternity and put them in time. Here we can say that the socialist has had success with 50% of its goal. It has been able to bring hell on earth. It has not succeeded where heaven is concerned. Now, whenever a man denies the word of God, whenever he denies that John's vision is the truth, that perfect justice, the perfect community is to be achieved in eternity. And perfect justice to evildoers is to be achieved in eternity. 
and he demands it inside. He then holds the doctrine of what has been called poetic justice. Now what is the doctrine of poetic justice? It is a doctrine which holds that virtue is to be rewarded in time and evil is to be rewarded in time. It is a doctrine that was born of the enlightenment of modern humanism of Leibniz, of Thomas Reimer, and of the other founders of the modern age. According to them, this world is the real world. And therefore, if there is to be the perfect justice that man hungers for, that man believes in, we cannot look for it in John's vision. We cannot wait for it in terms of a new Jerusalem, which is a myth, and a hell which no rational man can believe in. We must look for it in time. And if we are to look for it in time, and as they said, nature is perfect, and they were deists, believers in nature and natural law, then natural law must bring perfect justice in every day. you had an accident and lost your life, then you were obviously a bad character. Because natural law would have protected you otherwise. And so you could tell the character of men by their prosperity or their failure. Moreover, when you wrote that you were a good moral writer, a true humanist, a true child of the Enlightenment, you did not tolerate any triumph on the part of evil. Your villains, of course, were priests and preachers. But you made everything work out perfectly. And so, within a century or less of Shakespeare's death, they rewrote it. I have in my library the text, for example, of Shakespeare's King Lear, as it was rewritten. And of course, King Lear does not go mad. And King Lear does not have his griefs and problems overwhelming. Everything works out, and every evildoer is punished, and King Lear is triumphant. It had to be that way. It was highly immoral and anti-humanistic on the part of Shakespeare to allow evil even at this price. Now the first expectation of the doctrine of poetic justice because it denied the belief that Christians hold to concerning heaven and hell was that nature is the instrument of poetic justice. But after Darwin, one of their own number, 
exploded the idea of nature as being anything perfect, the scientific socialist state became, in humanistic thinking, the means whereby perfect justice is brought on earth. And so today we find history being solution in terms of the socialist doctrine of poetic justice or socialism. Every time there is a change in the political scene in the Soviet Union, the history books and the encyclopedias are rewritten, and the books now say that Trotsky, for example, was a villain from the beginning in spite of the fact that he was one of the two great figures of the Bolshevik party. Similarly, our history has been steadily rewritten, and the new textbook, Land of the Free, has a whole new set of heroes, a whole new set of villains for American history. It gives us American history a la the doctrine of socialism, Poetic justice. I think perhaps the most amusing example of this kind of business is to be found, of course, in the Soviet Union, where this business carried to its logical conclusion. During the days of Stalin, one communist party member was assigned to collectivize the Eskimos. And this was a difficult task. Everybody had failed before him and been punished by the party because the party does not tolerate failure. This is an impossibility. Socialism cannot fail, so that any party official who fails is ipso facto an anti-socialist. It is virtue. This is the doctrine of poetic justice. And this poor official, as he was assigned to collectivize the Eskimos, who didn't know what collectivization meant, figured his only chance was to make himself very, very friendly with the chief, which he gradually proceeded to do it. Well, it reached the point where the chief wanted to demonstrate they were indeed friends by giving him his wife to share, which is Eskimo custom, which was a very traumatic experience for the poor communists because Eskimo women are notoriously unclean, uh, smelly, and a few other things besides. But for the sake of Stalin, he did it. Then when his lovely wife arrived, the chief wanted him to reciprocate, and he insisted that his wife do so for the sake of the party. And she left, and he was kicked out. Now, in Moscow, play was made of this episode, but how was it rewritten? In the play, to fulfill the doctrine of poetic justice, his wife, of course, offered herself as a sacrifice, and the Eskimos who said, no, this would be too far as a thing, and became a convert on the spot to the glories of Stalinism and 
Everything has to be right in this world. Because this world is their heaven and hell. And they have succeeded in making it a hell wherever they are. They have not succeeded where heaven is concerned. John declares in this vision, holy city comes down out of heaven. It is not a city arising from earth and going into heaven, but it comes down from heaven from God. So the perfect justice is a matter of God's doing and God's grace, and the kingdom of God comes not as man works his way up to it, but as God by his grace ushers it in comes in part in time and in its fullness in eternity. And it comes as the tabernacle of God is within. And the tabernacle of God is eternal. For as John in his gospel declares, the only begotten Son of God who is with the Father has dwelt among the word is tabernacled amongst us. And repeatedly there is this reference to Jesus Christ as the tabernacle of God and the tabernacling presence of God. And so the kingdom of God and the perfect justice of God depends not on man's socialist efforts, but upon God's work through Jesus Christ. When we accept Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, when God by his grace makes us his people, God himself shall be with us and be our God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor Neither shall there be any more pain. For the form of things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And said unto me, Right. For these words are true and faithful. Jesus Christ is his coming is the making of all when we become Christians, we are added to that community of those who are made new to our regeneration. We are added to the circle of those who are citizens of the new position, who are under the perfect righteousness and justice of God, have the privilege of being in the world to come. We then face the world, which is a war of this vision. Politics promises today, heaven on earth, the concept of poetic justice and socialist justice. On the other hand, 
in heaven. And to those who are God's people and citizens of his kingdom, grace and blessings now and his providential care. His promise. For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, so that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man may do. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we give thanks unto thee that thou art God, that thou art the source of the Spirit, that thou hast prepared heaven and hell, that thy perfect justice and righteousness might be manifested throughout all things. Teach us that day by day to lose not in terms of foolish men, who offer us heaven on earth, that in terms of thy holy and infallible word, that in terms of the kingship of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, in his name we pray. Amen. Any questions now? Uh, we're going to see in your view of the difference between the prophetic revelation and the
in order to understand the thing which must come to pass. Because the Holy Ghost spoke through them, but fully using their personality. Now, of necessity it had to be that way. Because it became a part of them. Whereas if it had been from an angel, it would have been a message to them. But this was to be a message through them. And hence the distinction. Does that clarify the point or other questions uh, that I didn't fully understand in your uh, phrasing? One of the things to uh
supply you with all kinds of information about Christ, uh, supposedly, uh, information, uh, that deals with items of curiosity, or they will tell you a great deal about heaven, or a great deal about hell. When the Bible deliberately tells us nothing to satisfy our curiosity. Yes. Yes. Very good. And that kind of language is increasingly uh, the language of politics. More than once, President Johnson has talked as though heaven on earth is just around the corner. We are going to abolish poverty, ignorance, disease, all problems and usher all peoples of the earth into the perfection of life and the fullness of life, and so on. These are all messianic things. And if you abolish heaven and hell from eternity, you're going to have it on earth. Heaven and hell are inescapable categories of human thought. You can't escape thinking about them. The only question where are you going to locate them? Where God does? Or, or where Christ is? So, it's just a question of taking your choice. And the person says, well, I don't believe in hell. He most certainly does. But it's a socialist hell he believes in. It's a humanistic hell he believes in. Because he can't escape having a hell. And of course, he puts all of us in his hell because we're mentally sick and so on and so forth. In that we don't have his wisdom and don't share in all the vision of his heaven. And he says he doesn't believe in heaven, but what is he working for? Is heaven by another name. So that you do not abolish heaven and hell by saying you don't believe in them, you simply transfer them from eternity to time. Yes. Yes. There are certain basic presuppositions which all men have. No man can think without certain basic axioms and presuppositions of his thought. Now, there are two kinds of basic presuppositions. First, there are those presuppositions all men have by virtue of the fact that they are men created in the image of God. Created in terms of God's image and therefore inescapably thinking certain of God's thoughts after. Then there are those presuppositions which men adopt because of their faith, their system, 
For example, the humanist says to the Christian, oh, but you believe so many things, you have so many presuppositions. So much we take on faith. But the humanist takes a vast world of thought on faith also. And his thinking is premised on a wide variety of presuppositions. First, he asserts the autonomy of the Second, he asserts the validity of his rationality. Third, he asserts that the experimental method or whatever other method he may choose to uh, rest his confidence on will give him truth because there is the possibility of a valid, verifiable knowledge and so on. Now, these are matters of faith because as the uh, Philosophers of science will admit, if you question, that there can be no true knowledge under their premises until they have exhausted knowledge, which is impossible for them. So they are as thoroughly fundamentalistic as any Bible-believing fundamentalist. But theirs is a fundamentalism of humanism. Now, how are you going to demonstrate these presuppositions to you? First, you have to challenge their claim to be objective, rational thinkers and say, your thinking is presuppositionalism to far because there is no thinking apart from presuppositions. Certain axioms of thought. So that you are not what you claim to be. Second, to say, your presuppositions do not hold water. Because before you can assume your presuppositions, you assume an order in the universe which points to God. So that you presuppose a God in order to be able to presuppose your humanism. Your whole thinking, therefore, rests on a ladder, on a foundation that you refuse to acknowledge. You say it isn't there. Because if the the unbeliever was strictly honest in terms of his propensity. He would say there is nothing in the universe but brute factuality, meaningless, unrelated facts. And I have no way of tying them together. I have no way of having any knowledge until I can know all things, which is impossible. Therefore, there is no knowledge possible. There is no certainty about anything. Therefore, I cannot profess to think validly because I cannot assert even the validity of human thought. Now, they are used to, of course, working a double standard with us. For example, Darwin. At all points, we suppose of God in order to give him a world that he could say has certain laws in it in order to have evolution. And he even admits this at the end of his origin of species when he talks about the great creator uh, who has given us all this. But let him just stay in the background and not come into the picture. But when he was asked questions about the Bible and about faith, 
He would say, oh yes, these things seem logical enough in terms of the order you have in the universe. Now, use that order to posit evolution. But, how do I know there is really order? Because I'm nothing but another monkey. And I wouldn't trust the thinking of any other monkey, so why should I trust mine when I come to thinking about God or the Bible? So, you see, he was nothing but an ape if his thinking led to God. But he was a great scientist whose thinking was valid science. And he was thinking about evolution. Now, this was so childish that uh, it was amusing. But this is consistently the double standard they work on us. Their thinking is pure supreme suppositionalism. Cornelius Van Til, whom I believe to be the greatest philosopher of our age, has said that if the modern humanists, the modern unbelievers were honest to themselves, they could not think. They would have no science, no knowledge. They borrow God's thinking and then disavow. Any other questions? Uh, yes. Washington report of 
Alan and Scott for Wednesday, the 15th of June. A special White House task force is recommending the creation of a federal data center, which eventually could have a comprehensive file on every man, woman, and child in the country. Now under study in inner administration circles, the still secret report advocates the gradual transfer of all governmental records and statistics to magnetic computer tapes, which would be turned over to a newly created agency that would function as a general data center. The computerized information will be available at the push of a button to a wide range of governmental authorities, and so on. So it would be a compiling that concludes a cradle-to-grave record on all citizens, so that at the push of a button, they could get all the data they want on you, and his then big brother would really be walking to it. This is one more step towards the socialist paradise. Yes. Um, you have the third part again, the
Truman's administration, we had, what was it, a Plymouth Rock tent on one stand. So, yes, National Poultry Week. We got around to observing National Poultry Week long before we got to observing Christmas on the stand. We still haven't conceived Christ in our Christmas observance. Any other questions? Oh, yes.
impossible to transfer that. <laughs> yeah. Unity of life means that there is one life in all of us. God's life, your life, the life of every man under the sun, and the animals too, some are told, is just one life. So that the truth about us is not our individuality. That is more or less mythological. It is our unity with all life. So the divine life is present in all life everywhere. Therefore, we need to forget our personality, which is a transcendental thing, and emphasize our unity with the oneness of life everywhere, which means, of course, collectivization. There is one collective whole of life, and there should be one collective community of life. That's why every such belief and you have it in Christian science, you have it in Unitarianism, you have it in mysticism. It always leads to a collectivist concept politically and a pantheistic concept religiously. It's a deadly thing. Well, the kindliest thing you can say about them is they are a spiritually muddle-headed.